we're just sitting here with Gord McGill, who is a truck driver and a Canadian and has been uh, actively commenting on trucking and the protests lately, now that it started, the truck protests. So we're both really excited to have him on to get his thoughts on all of this, on the trucking industry and on the protests in particular. And uh, I understand that you've become something of a hot commodity right now, Gord. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I'm really nobody. I, I do have 25 years of experience in the trucking business, pretty extensive. I've driven truck in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States. Um, in the last few years, I've become a little bit more outspoken about problems I see with it and have done a bit more academic research you might call it and uh, Mm -hmm. i've appeared on a few podcasts wrote a couple articles here and there but um like i say i'm more like a flaneur i suppose um (laughs) uh with an 18 speed Uh, and this uh this this particular freedom convoy has uh taken place um sort of at that at, at a time when um after not immediately after but um there's a podcast called what's left you guys know amy therese and oliver bateman and um Mm -hmm. i've done two shows with them and with the uh sociology professor named steve vichelli who wrote a Mm -hmm. book on the trucking industry called the big rig uh, trucking and the decline of the american dream which looks at uh why truck drivers wages and material conditions have been in steady decline uh, for mm-hmm. the past several decades and um it's a very very good good work he spent 10 years studying the business inside and out i have uh i highly recommend it and this freedom convoy thing is um, not necessarily based around wages but definitely material conditions because one the most important material condition is sovereignty over your own body Mm -hmm. and um, Trudeau and Biden have decided that in order to uh, take goods back and forth over the border between our two countries, you must submit to the uh, Wuhan plague experimental gene therapy um, (laughs) in order to keep your job. Even though for the past two years of this pandemic, uh, we were exempt and everything was fine. And there's been no, no studies done whatsoever to show that truck drivers uh, spread COVID any more or any less than any other group of people. Mm -hmm. And we're also in the middle of a supply chain crisis, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And um, from my my view, it looks like pure punishment. So uh, as this freedom convoy has gained steam and captured the sort of hearts of Canadians, I, I live in the United States now. My wife is American, but I went home to participate um, with the arrival of the convoy in Ottawa. And I went downtown, talked to truck drivers, expressed my solidarity with everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, I posted numerous videos and I've, yeah, just been sort of commenting on it online. And um, here we are. Yeah. Well, before I jump in with some questions I had for you, um, I did want to highlight an interesting uh, UK connection you had that we were talking about yesterday before. So you were telling me that you're actually, you have a Scottish uh, ancestor, right? Not too distant. Uh, mm. Correct. Yeah. My, my mother was born in Scotland uh, in Airdrie where my grandfather's yeah. from. My grandmother was from Hyde Bank in uh, Glasgow. Sort of one of the 
notorious social housing schemes of that city. And um, mm-hmm. anyway, my grandfather worked at a steel mill in Airdrie, and he was a union organizer there. And uh, one of the reasons he immigrated to Canada was he ran for some kind of local political office in Airdrie um, as an outspoken union organizer. And I think the Tories gave him a hard time. And uh, anyway, uh, it all left a bad taste in his mouth. And he, he moved to Canada and went to work at a steel mill in Hamilton. Many such cases, especially like of the 50s through to the 80s, uh, big waves of Scottish workers leaving leaving for Canada is like uh, the steel industry on the West Coast in particular got shafted and slowly closed down. So now there really isn't one left. So, yeah, quite a lot of people went that way. Yeah. And I mean, you know, if you go even further back in Canada's history, the Scots were sort of the uh, boots on the ground for the Hudson's Bay Company working with uh, French voyageurs and the Metis and the, all the fur trade and whatnot. So, you know, the, the Scottish have been a thing in Canada for a good long time. And um, I mean, I guess that's a good segue to maybe talking about the protests. So I, I live in Ottawa. I've been going, I've been going every day to check it out and to speak to. I haven't gotten a chance yet to speak to the truckers who are parked along the street in front of Parliament yet. But I have spoken to a lot of the protest at- attendees. And I think it's gone down a little bit because, of course, uh, during the weekend, people are able to come during the weekday. They're working. Um, OK, so. One of the big accusations leveled at the protest, as we've all been hearing, is that it's it's racist, it's white supremacist, it's you know fascist. Even I've <laughs> well, the, uh, the, the the media, the institutional media in Canada, and yeah. um, especially you know the the ones that would sort of paint themselves as you know pro average person or pro worker, the CBC, and then your various other flavors of media, they're just coping because um, this thing is like, <laughs> it was literally spontaneously organized, right? Like two, yeah. weeks, two weeks ago, nobody had even heard of this. And the organizers are literally like two people in Alberta and they, organ- they got their money on GoFundMe through small donations mm-hmm. and they have no connection to any union, to any uh, institutional labor organization whatsoever. They have no connection to any of Canada's federal political parties and no connection to the media or any bigwigs in society whatsoever. So on the one hand, they can't be controlled by any of those people I just listed mm-hmm. and any of those organizations can't take any credit for it. So, I mean, there's a legitimate, um, a legitimate spot, spontaneous, workers uprising so to speak and um they, they just don't know what to do with themselves uh the the media so you know find one guy with a crisp brand new confederate flag uh very conveniently located next to justin trudeau's personal photographer and then <laughs> another 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 dingbat who has yet to be identified who happened to be down the street with a swastika and whatever, even even if those two people with those two particular flags yeah. legitimately held those views, um, it's a bit of a reach to say these two guys here that just happened to show up represent the, what, 100,000 people that were there on Saturday? Like, come on. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just wanted to, um, you know, bring in the story about your background. And because when I went to the protest, like, 
of course, the majority of Canadians are quote unquote white, but in fact, Canada is a very diverse place uh, in other ways, like in terms of its history, in terms of the different nations that came here to found uh, this country, including the, the indigenous nations. And I thought what was really uh, cool, interesting was to see all of that come together, especially on Saturday, where the first day of the protest, you saw all of these different kind of facets of Canadian history kind of come together geographically and politically and stuff, especially in terms of the political um, diversity with regards to the French Canadians. I was very surprised to see like the Patriot flag and all of these different things. So I think it's it's a little, you know, and, but it was also diverse in terms of like uh, racial diversity. But this kind of diversity is never really like talked about, but it was on full display on set. I've never seen a coming together of like Francophones, Indigenous nations, um, English Canadians and all of these different sub geographical areas and political orientations into one place in such a large way. So, well, this is this is the thing is, is the is the week leading up to Saturday as this movement picked up steam. Uh, you would have seen videos posted all over social media and, uh, of, uh, you know, the convoys assembling, um, uh, na native groups having celebrations because th this has touched people uh, deep in their spirit because we yeah. had two years of these um, nutty lockdowns and psychological warfare and people, you know, experiencing great adversity, losing jobs, losing opportunities, uh, masking up and just all of the depravity that's happened in the wake of the Canadian government's mishandling of the Wuhan plague uh, and the provincial governments. And, and you mentioned the French, like one of the things I noticed when I was there is that I, 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 I think Quebecers outnumbered everybody else there. And in particular, because, you know, under the Legault regime in, in Quebec, they've just been yeah. subjected to the worst, most draconian, you know, apartheid measures, you know, like curfews. Yeah. If you're unvaccinated, you go to a store, you have to have some minder come with you while you're doing your shopping to make sure you only buy essentials. Like the outgrouping mm -hmm. and scapegoating that's gone on by provincial and federal government leaders against people is it's um disgusting to say the least and the and the front and the and the francophone contingent at the demonstration on parliament hill i think speaks to that like they're they're they really were expressing solidarity just for the simple fact lego has turned quebec into a nightmare it, i mean it has been a nightmare my mom lives in quebec she's quebecois and um i mean it's been awful in Ontario. Don't get me wrong. I think we've been home to some of the longest lockdowns in North America. But uh, Legault really takes it next level. And he doesn't get as much. It, it, he has fewer bars to hold him behind just because of Quebec's kind of special relationship to the rest of Canada and the hesitancy that politicians, federal politicians have in critiquing Quebec. Um and usually, you know, his, people don't understand this because they tend to project American politics onto Canadian politics. But historically speaking, the most contentious divide in this country is actually linguistic between the French and the English, like the French Canadians and the English Canadians. And this is something that has really brought those two groups together in a way that over an issue that, you know, it, it's not it's not that common to see this kind of um, solidarity amongst uh, the two linguistic groups. 
As, like was, was, wasn't it? Or who was the writer that referred to it as the two solitudes? Oh, was that uh, Charles Taylor? Taylor, I think. I think it was Charles I, Taylor. Yeah. I can't remember, but uh, yeah, it's no longer the two solitudes. It's the two rowdies. Um, you know, <laughs> we've had enough. Um. Okay. So maybe just moving away from some niche Canadian political stuff. Uh. Okay, so I'm sure that you're in and around left Twitter, Marxist Twitter, who has responded <laughs> horribly to this whole thing. But one of the claims that are being leveled at the truckers participating in this protest is that the demands are unrelated to working conditions, not directly speaking, right? Like there's no wage demands. There's no demands in regards to improving, you know, road conditions or something like that. So what would you say to that critique? Um, that, you know, this is just about, uh, I would say, I would say to that critique that it's simplistic and obtuse, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, a, a working condition is not having to maintain your job based on a coercive demand that you take a medical treatment into your body that you don't want. And you should be able to make that decision on yourself. Right. Like it's not all about money. I was having this discussion with somebody yesterday who said the same thing. You know, well, you know, truck drivers are getting all these huge rate increases. I'm like, yeah, because the the capacity of trucks has been unnaturally restricted. So when there's less of something in a market economy, the price of it goes up. And I mean, that's fine. Um, but like it, people don't understand one of the one of the things I tried to get across in uh, one article I wrote once and in the uh, series I did with what's left is the human element involved, Mm -hmm. you know, like in your life as a worker, it's not, it's not just about money and it's not just about like, Oh, how long is my shift or how's my schedule? Like you identify with some people identify with their job and there's other factors at play besides just money, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of a lot of truckers like are, oh man, how do I put this? They really like trucking like you have to like it. It's not an easy job. You're mm-hmm. away from home all the time. You spend a lot of time by yourself. Um, it's very demanding uh, time and schedule wise. There's all kinds of uh, different conditions you're going to meet out on the road. And, you know, you, you get you get pushed quite a bit, you know, like schedules have to be met. And, you know, it's it, it, it requires a certain personality type um, to be successful. And that same personality type also lends itself towards being stubborn and lends itself towards being somewhat iconoclastic. And there's a lot of truck drivers that are that are just not interested in taking the vaccine or having that be a condition of their employment, especially when there's no proof that it's going to do anything or actually, you know, improve the wider health of the Canadian body politic, given that we've seen all across the uh, world that the Omicron variant just ripped through everybody and the vaccine has not lived up to its original promises. Mm -hmm. So... Ali, did you want to jump in? I know I've been, uh, I don't want to take up too much room. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I recognize this is Canadian corner today, but the um, <laughs> uh, one thing that one thing that struck me was the um, was the similarity, actually, in the way this has been, the way this has been treated to a lot of things that have happened over the last five years. Like we've had the 
um, yellow vest movement in France all got called um, fascists and racists by Macron and various representatives of the French left. Um, all those of us who voted for Brexit got spent many years being called, uh, well, everything from white supremacists to agents of the Kremlin. Uh, then you had uh, all the hysteria over Trump in the United States, and now they're playing the same card in Canada against the against the truckers' protest. It seems like they've only got one move that they go to, which is uh, well, racist, pro- fascist, white supremacist. The problem is, is that one move is sufficient insofar as the email classes and the sort of caste of people involved in bureaucracies and the administration of state have been drinking the identity politics Kool-Aid for like over a decade now, maybe far longer. And it's the, these people get off on thought terminating cliches, like actually digging into material interests or legitimate concerns of people, if they don't want to do it, they just have to say all these magic words and and you're done. And uh, something I just remembered I didn't get to with the last part there was that the the vaccine thing, um, as you said, like for for a number of years, the the yellow vests were called fascists in France and same with Brexit. Uh, uh, There's been like an ongoing war on truck drivers in North America. And I'm trying to uh articulate this for an article i want to write and sort of pack it all together um there's been a number of regulatory impositions on the trucking business in canada and the united states over the last 20 years that have just added up and added up and added up and and the vaccine mandate uh seems to me like it was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back like Mm. between between the eld mandate which basically says the government now has a device in your truck that watches your every move and monitors where you go which i don't know how they got that past fourth amendment protections in the u.s but whatever the american constitution's long since been decomposing toilet paper and um (laughs) you know drug testing many companies have driver facing cameras in their trucks um, the 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 health and safety department and HR department demons that bu- bug you about everything whenever you get back. Um, you just the, the the tender mercies of the administrative state and the case of people in management of large companies against truckers and other members of the working class just doesn't seem to have any end to it. You know, like the, nobody can just be left alone to do their job anymore. So mm-hmm. this this mandate comes along, and it's like that's it. Like we've had, like it's it it, 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 it we've had enough. You know. Yeah, I I think this kind of response, like saying, well, there's no wage demands, there's no uh, you know, demands related kind of specifically to working conditions. I think it's very dehumanizing to people, as if you know they can only ever protest if it's for like a $1 wage boost or something like this is the only thing that's worth supporting working people over. Whereas I actually think that questions of self-determination and um, the ability to control one's own life is much more important where, you know, wages of course is integral to this question. And I do think it would be great if um, there were some wage demands associated with this whole protest movement but even if there isn't, or it, it's still, I think it, this question of um, being able to decline a medical treatment 
uh, to, to be able to express one's own rational assessment of a situation and uh, take that forward, I think is an integral question for the working class as a whole. Um, it's, I think it's, an, it's I think it's an integral question for humanity as a whole. Like this is what uh, yeah. I'm saying. It, it, the, the the freedom convoy thing is like so much bigger than just truckers or vaccine mandates. And I think this is why it's touched so many people in Canada and around the world. Is that yeah? I mean, we are slowly but surely having our you know our what's the word I'm looking for having having our own agency to make decisions for us, to make risk assessments, to lead our lives as we see fit taken away from us by technocrats, mm -hmm. by bureaucrats, and now by this worldwide fear and mass psychosis about this virus that actually has very little effect on the people that, that get it. You know, the IFR is really low. Um, you know, and once you get like it, it, like again, another straw and another camel, mm. right? Like the collective body politic of the world is just we're suffering under ad, administrators and people just getting in our shit all the time. And like at some point, you have to say enough's enough. We have our own agency. We have our own capacity to make these decisions. And like, we're not all a risk to each other. We're not all going to make each other sick and die. Like enough with the fear, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also for me, um, I see it as an expression of rationality as against the irrationality of the people who manage this society, huge air quotes. Um, because th this this mandate doesn't make any sense, like on so many different levels, like the vaccine doesn't stop transmission. Um, truckers, even though the, the mandate applies to them crossing the border, they can still travel without the vaccine interprovincially. So I don't I don't understand why you need a mandate for cross border travel, but then it's fine for them to travel throughout the country. They're coming after that. That's their next step. They're talking about that. Next <laughs> yeah, step. he uh, did. No, seriously, the, seriously yeah. they are. And yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> Well, and another thing, one of the reasons I decided to start being a bit more public and out about my views about trucking um, is there's so many people that will, that talk about it in the media, especially even within the trucking media, that literally know squat about the business and they don't know what they're talking about. And mm -hmm. a criticism I've seen leveled by many people online is, well, if you don't want to cross the border, you can just you can just drive within Canada. Well, most truck drivers in Canada head south. Our trade relationship with the United States is so massive that mm. the vast majority of truckers that do that are Canadian go south. They go to the U.S., they come back. They go back and forth south. The east-west domestic trucking within Canada, that market is a whole lot smaller. And if mm. every truck driver that was affected by this vaccine mandate tried to get into that market they would find there's not enough positions for them and mm. over and above that you know the other day the the feds said that they're looking into having an interprovincial mandate now like they're just they just keep turning the screws and there's nowhere yeah. to go yeah. and there's these ignorant obtuse motherfuckers online that just don't care and they just come they just like oh maybe you can just drive around here or do something else well okay First they came for the truckers, but I wasn't a trucker, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think uh, the yeah, you're talking about the, um, I think Al Gabra, the, the Minister of Transportation, such a fool, made that announcement. I, I don't think that's actually, that, that's, 
yeah, anyways, I have my thoughts on to whether or not that's like legally jurisdictionally possible for the feds to pull through. But as you're saying, like, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense from a objective perspective. And it's just very, um, I think it's very important to, when we're thinking about this whole pandemic, like how many things have been forced upon the population that just don't make any sense. Like they don't make any sense whatsoever. They've never been justified by the federal government or the provincial governments, depending on what restriction you're talking about. And you're just forced to do them because someone tells you, I told you so, right? Like there, it, it's, Pretty much. it's just authoritarian nonsense. And like for the, the only group of people who can, you know, express a rationality. And in fact, you know, it just moving away from maybe this more esoteric um, interpretation, I think citizens of a liberal democratic state have the right to demand their government who is infringing on their rights, who is restricting their freedoms or, you know, canceling them altogether should provide some kind of justification and evidence for why they're doing it. And no provincial government has done this. No federal, the federal government has not had to do this in open court because the judiciary here has been so um, deferential to them during this whole thing. And so, you know, I, it, I think that this protest, it really speaks to I mean, so many levels of like um, just political injustice that we've suffered here on top of the actual physical and, men and mental and stuff injustice that we've had. Yeah, well, it's basically submission, you know, and like you said, yeah. none of it makes any sense. And, you know, it's it's just it's, it's pure punishment at this point. Trudeau, it ju he just wants to move forward with this and Biden's the same way. It's just get vaccinated. Like, that's your only solution. Um, there's a commentator in the United States, this guy named Brett Weinstein, who is, you know, famous for this incident at a college he taught at and he's sort of become his own big podcast and he's been a skeptic of a lot of these measures and one of the one of the frames he uses to look at this is like if this pandemic if this virus is such a big deal and it's so bad you would think that we would use more than one tool to address it you would address it with prophylactics you would you know, you would tell people to get healthier instead of just sitting around and not getting exercise. You would uh, tell everybody to take vitamin D because there's all kinds of studies saying vitamin D improves your outcomes if you do get COVID. And there's been none of that. It's just vaccine, <laughs> yeah. vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. Like they're just like they're just beating they're they're just beating this drum, and no other discussion of any other way to tackle this problem will be tolerated. And when the Freedom Convoy guys roll into Ottawa and now Trudeau's got this problem on his hands, he doesn't have any other script. It's just you guys are racist and take the vaccine. And if not too bad, like this, what is this? It's punishment. Yeah. It's punishment yeah. for failing to submit to his authority. The man is a tyrant and he's unfit to lead. Yeah, it's no way to treat citizens of a liberal democratic state to tell someone you have to do this because I told you so. This is more akin to a, a king speaking to peasants or something like that. Like Yeah, no, it's kids' table shit. <laughs> um yeah, it's it's just been and it, it it's so frustrating for you know, as you were saying, like no other solution has been considered. You know, the media is now uh the, the media coverage of Canada has been I mean, it's just been pure propaganda to the point of like, just like, it's been like a coordinated smear job in my opinion, but, um, you know, they never, I'm working they, on that. I, I'm working on that. I, I have a, I have a rebuttal to all that coming out later today. Hopefully. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm looking forward to it. 
you know, they never ask these kinds of questions. Like they never actually address the demand head on. They always speak about, you know, this or that action and, um, you know, kind of wring their hands over whatever happened at the protest. You know, they never it, like the traditional role of journalism, you know, kind of dating from the French Revolution was as the fourth estate, as this um, this group of people that's supposed to question power and, um, you know, uncover uh, what's really going on in this whole thing. And, you know, kind of act like for work for the people in doing so. Like this is what the media, the role of media played, for instance, in the French Revolution as against the aristocracy. Um, but none of them, you know, ask these simple questions like, why is it that we're not considering other solutions? Like, why is it that in Ontario, for instance, we have less healthcare capacity overall than we did in March 2020 after two years of a so-called pandemic? Um, you know, why why is it that, you know, you're saying that the vaccine will fix the pandemic and yet Justin Trudeau is now isolating after having three doses of this vaccine? He contracts the the virus again, and now he needs to isolate, you know, if this story is true. If the story is true, it means a vaccine, at the very least, is not going to stop. It's obviously not stopping transmission. Even the Prime Minister of Canada is not able to protect himself from contracting this disease. Why would the truckers be able to extract such a benefit from this vaccine? Okay, so before I start ranting too much about uh, Justin Trudeau and the media, um, I did want to get your thoughts on... <laughs> Um, I want to take advantage of your uh, knowledge on this industry and something that I've been thinking a lot about and trying to wrap my hand my head around is, um, I guess, the class composition of this protest. Uh, so I'm sure you've seen or maybe not. Maybe you have, um, you know, a lot of leftists have been dismissing this or a lot of so-called Marxists have been dismissing this as a petty bourgeois protest. And I just want to preface this in saying that, like, I, I, I tend to, and I think wrongly, now that I'm kind of in this situation, uh, wrongly use this word almost as an insult, but it, it really isn't because it's more a reflection. It's more of a way that we can understand the political potential of something that's happening, really. But there's nothing wrong or, you know, um, negative about the petty bourgeoisie in principle. They often do act in support of the proletariat, in support of the working class, um, depending on the circumstances. So a lot of people are accusing or, you know, saying, okay, the truckers that are parked in front of parliament are petty bourgeois since they are owner operators. But listening to your great interview on what's left and then um, also with the sociologist that you mentioned, the owner operator category of truckers is actually quite ambiguous. It's not really what it sounds like. Um, so I'm wondering if you could speak to this, like the kind of actual conditions of owner operators in the trucking industry, which in Canada encompass around between 20 to 40 percent of the truckers, as far, as far as I've been able to find. Well, being an owner operator just basically means you own the truck, but like there's all kinds of different arrangements involved in getting the financing for it. The companies you contract with, maybe you haul your own freight. Um, maybe you just happen to be a farmer that has to haul your own product around. So you have a truck. There's a lot of those guys at this, uh, within the freedom convoys, uh, a lot, a lot of farmer guys that just happen on their own truck. There's a few small companies I noticed there where it's like a family business that may have been around for a few decades and they have like a small group of their own customers that they haul for and they're, they're just expressing solidarity. Mm. Um, you know, the, there's the, the, the trucking represents uh, the trucking labor force is not as 
segmented necessarily as what these guys are getting at. And I, I mean, I don't, I, 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 I don't know exactly how these people are framing it as petit bourgeois or what, what they even mean by that. But I'm like, there's financing, there's big trucking companies that will, um, you know, make these lease operator agreements and you can almost have no credit. You can just be like a literal basic working class person yeah. Um, shows a, 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 a certain amount of competence at the job and not even having been in it for very long. And they'll start asking you, hey, do you want to buy this truck? Because a lot of these lease operator and owner operator arrangements are kind of like a, a cost downloading scam, especially if you're doing it with like a large carrier, mm-hmm. you know, what, what I refer to as legacy carriers. And in the Freedom Convoy, there's not actually... It's hard to say who everybody is because, like, uh, there was also a lot of, like, individual pickup trucks. So Mm -hmm. people came in their own personal vehicles because if Mm -hmm. you work for a trucking company and it's not your truck, it's their truck. And Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden you're laid off because of the the vaccine mandate and and you won't get your shot. Well, you no longer have a truck to drive. So, you know, like, if you look at the numbers of vehicles that actually showed up in Ottawa, they're not all big trucks. There's a lot of personal vehicles, right? Yeah, so the, 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 this claim that uh, the, the, the freedom convoy is all petty bouge is mm. kind of nonsense because there's a lot of people that are simply drivers. They are employees. They do not own their trucks, and now mm. they can't drive them, so they are in Ottawa expressing solidarity. Now, yeah, are there some petit bouge people? Absolutely. Like I say, you might have, be part of a family that's owned trucks for decades or owned a farm. You mm. possibly you you're probably in that category, but that's not everybody, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess um something you spoke about with that, which I thought was really. I, I just want to also say that like, even if everyone there was petty bourgeois, it doesn't matter because they're 100 percent right, <laughs> and they are <laughs> definitely. There is no like when I went on Saturday, I um had I had a little survey that I was asking people because I wanted to ascertain, you know, who was there. Like I wanted to understand demographics of who was there. And the first question I had on there was like, are you a trucker? For some reason in my mind, I thought everyone there would be a trucker, but actually the mass, the mass majority of people I spoke to, and yes, it was just a small sample, but I think there's a lot of signs that it is, there's a huge working class contingent, like, you know, whatever traditional working class, whatever you want to say that are supporting this. Um, there was workers from all different kinds of industries that were there. I didn't, I wasn't able to speak to one trucker from like just kind of randomly surveying people in the crowd. Like there was, uh, I spoke to a lot of Francophones, uh, you know, early childhood educators, uh, construction workers, students, like copywriters, like there's so just people from all different industries. Well, the, so, yeah, the solidarity was coming from all directions. And yeah. I mean, um, as I was gauging the crowd, most truckers that were there were in their trucks <laughs> playing on their air horns or, yeah. you know, just sort of doing security and keeping an eyeball on things. Cause like, who knows who's going to come along and maybe try and rip one of your airlines off. If you've got a trailer or pull your fifth wheel pin or, you know, start finger painting in all the road salt, like any of the photos you'd see online, like all these trucks were covered in salt because they drove from wherever yeah. in Canada through 
hundreds or thousands of kilometers of snowy roads that get tons of salt dumped on them. So the trucks are all covered in salt. And uh, everybody was finger painting and, and writing messages in the salt on guys' trucks and trailers. I thought it was kind of funny. Yeah. And it, it speaking from a Marxist perspective and, um, you know, everyone has their own politics, but like what the petty, the, the bet, like in the, in the best of times. And I think this is an example of, of, of the best of uh, the petty bourgeoisie and what they can do, you know, like I'm not kind of making a generalization of everyone that's there, but those of the truckers who are there, who are petty bourgeois, who are there supporting the convoy, who have taken this financial, reputational, all these other risks to make it, they're demonstrating solidarity and leadership um, in a way that we've seen other petty bourgeois professionals completely fail at doing. You know, like I always, I always, I'm always, I continue to be shocked with the fact that when the passports were instituted and probably before then too, that was essentially a nullification of voluntary informed consent, which is a bedrock of modern medical ethics. If the doctors, for instance, then I'm going to, you know, target them and the other kind of natural scientists that work with um, around human ethics, if they are worth their salt and they were truly uh, leaders in our society as they're kind of put out to be, they would have said, OK, we're not going to be administrating any more vaccines until you drop these passports and you drop the coercion because you've nullified voluntary informed consent, thereby making it impossible for us to practice good medical ethics. And they didn't do it. Right. It's only the truckers who did it. I finally um, it came out and stood up for these things and for so many other things that have been completely sidelined. Well, the failures of like the, the people in the position, such as doctors, I, I, I don't want to speak for all doctors. So I don't know. But, you know, the various colleges of physicians, you know, provincial level. Um, you know, the, the boards that represent doctors and like, you know, sort of police their own um, profession, they have all been in full lockstep with the vaccine narrative. And if yeah. any doctor speaks out or says anything that's not part of that, they face losing their license to practice. So there's this climate of fear. And then in, the, in other people and like you, you keep using the term petty bourgeois. So other people in that sort of economic strata like that might be in the same income bracket as somebody who owns a business or a farm or a bunch of trucks are, you know, in the media or in the administrative state or within corporations. Mm -hmm. And they're all singing the same tune, you know, and now that might be because they actually believe it. They might have drank the Kool-Aid or maybe they're just going along to get along. And, um, you know, there's, there's a like I mentioned before, there's a particular personality type that is attracted to the trucking business mm. and that I think is playing a role here in saying we're not taking this crap we don't want to do it this way mm. um, and we are going to stand up for these principles even though everybody else who should be is not yeah and um, I mean I think th I, I'm still thinking through this but I think there is a lot to be said with the for the fact that um, you know truckers of all kinds are involved in the productive process I think also, like, I just think it's what I see this as, you know, if I can quote Trotsky and Lenin at the same time, you know, Trotsky was describing why he thinks the Bolsheviks are able to be successful in the Russian Revolution. And he quotes Lenin by saying, you know, power was was laying on the streets and we just picked it up. You know, that was the 
So I think that, you know, there's been so much disconsent and so much righteous indignation with regards to so many of these things. But no one, no politician, no group in Canada was willing to pick up on it. And, you know, to kind of I and I, I wouldn't even uh, peg it on them entirely. So Tamara Litch and Benjamin Ditcher, who are the kind of the two main fundraising, maybe organizational leads to some extent, are not like super talented political organizers. They have you know, maybe a history of maybe quacky political positions that they've taken, you know, but they, the truckers and maybe them to some extent um, identified this and chose to pick it up. And the response was phenomenal. It was, it's been like a global um, response even. Well, it, it, it was there to pick up and that analogy works insofar as in the last couple of years around the world, there's this supply chain crisis going on. Because mm-hmm. of just-in-time delivery, because of everything going on, boats coming and going out of Asia or whatever, like this interconnected global economy has become so finely tuned and so efficient that it's also brittle and fragile. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not all truckers are for this, right? So, like, you've got the Canadian Trucking Alliance who, like, represents large me- legacy carriers who've been absolutely attacking the Freedom Convoy, their pro-vaccine mandate, because, like, They're corporatists. They want that regulatory capture. Most of their associations are large trucking companies who are only too happy to like get away of their get rid of their smaller competition. But the problem is, is because of the fragility of supply chains, even if you sideline the 10 or 15 percent of truck drivers that refuse to get the vaccine and a lot of these small, as you say, petit bouge owner operators and companies, if you take that capacity off the market, it's mm-hmm. going to have larger ramifications for th- that market. And um, before the Freedom Convoy rolled into town on Ottawa, a, a number of like industry groups, not necessarily trucking, but just like business in general, mm-hmm. had written letters to Trudeau saying you should let this exemption for the drivers stay and not force this mandate on them because the prices for freight are increasing. We're having all these um, problems getting certain products to market there's like these little problems that are popping up everywhere like within distribution and logistics and factories not being able to work on certain schedule because their stuff's not showing up on time because of this interconnected nature of the economy that small fraction of truckers being outside of it is now exposing that fragility even more so the organizers of the freedom convoy i think understand this quite well and they have a lot of leverage now and now you're starting to see this pick up in other countries and mm. I, th- I, I, I don't want to be too hopeful about this. Yeah. But that picking up of power in the street, as you said it, is becoming realized around the world. And I only hope that, like, it keeps moving forward. Well, we've seen it um, come in. I mean, I've heard there's a, now a trucker's convoy starting in Australia uh, that, 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 that might be going off. There was um, uh, at least a trucker solidarity protest in Holland. Uh, the Dutch got in on the act there. There's talk of it in France. I think it would have happened here, but Boris Johnson very smartly dropped all restrictions um, just in time, it seems. Um, but the, 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 the overall impact seems to have been magnified by the fact that you've had two years where every single traditional um, avenue for expression of dissent in Canada and to a large extent, the U.S. as well, has basically been paralyzed by like emphatic support of like the COVID regime. 
So like loads of people in Canada, it seems, would you, and other countries, particularly in the Anglosphere, they were just looking for a something to be like a totem for them. Uh, the truckers came along, and that seems to be the the uh, the thing that people have seized on. But like as you were saying, Gord, like the the fragility of the whole situation with the supply chains and the global economy kind of exposes this. And I'm surprised that Trudeau went ahead when the industry groups were appealing to him to stop. It seems like a very very stupid move on his part, and I'm surprised nobody stepped in to stop him. Well, I, I had a conversation on Sunday when I was driving home with a friend of mine from Saskatchewan who's somewhat politically connected. And I've heard this in other places as well. There's there's factions within the federal Liberal Party in Canada, right? Like um, when I was younger, um, there was the sort of Chrétien, Martinite factions within the Liberal Party. There's always like various groups within it. And I think some of the old guard people within the Liberal Party aren't very happy with Trudeau right now. I mean, over and above the fact he's costing certain businesses money, um, we are seeing uh, shortages of various items, although they're not, like, nobody's starving. There's still food and whatnot, but, like, there are shortages here and there. Um, just the optics of it are bad. Like, what king runs away from his castle? Like, yeah. Trudeau has in the face of a peaceful protest. Like, they, they tried to pump up this January 6th Canada version narrative, and Trudeau just bought it and then flew away. Like, <laughs> what what kind of leadership is this? Like, he's basically a laughing stock now, and he's being openly made fun of on American television. And, you know, I, I think there has to be people within the federal Liberal Party that know this is not good, right? Mm. Yeah, I my read of the situation and I was also I posted about this like I was like there's no way that Trudeau is going to not you know extend this exemption because it didn't make any sense. <laughs> and it also had you know real economic impact uh on businesses. But when he did, I was I was I was surprised not what I would have anticipated. But I think that um Justin Trudeau, you know, in and of himself is a stupid person. But I think also the problem with the Canadian political system it, at the provincial and federal level is that the decision-making powers is really focused in the hands of just a few people in and around the prime minister. And so if you have a dumb prime minister, if you have a dumb, if you have a dumb advisors, then it's, and if you're all, you're, you're just getting dumb advice and cabinet in Canadian politics, like they don't, they just basically wait until the prime minister makes a decision and then they just agree with it instead of engaging in debate, engaging in um, deliberation, which is, you know, kind of the traditional um, role of cabinet. Yeah, I mean, bad decisions can be taken. And, you know, now that he's taken the decision, he has to dig his heels in, he has to save face. Um, and I think he's being really, like, bl blostered by, of course, the Canadian media, which is reinforcing all of his talking points at every turn, um, going out of their way to find, you know, whatever this random person who's carrying a, a flag that people don't associate with things they don't like. I think it's like, I, I think certainly the Liberal Party has factions and there's probably some discontent with Justin Trudeau, especially after he failed to make any gains during this last election. But there's just so few venues, even within the party, even within Parliament, to actually voice that. Like, there's so much party discipline in Canada and the cabinet won't speak up against the PM. Well, also, there's no effective opposition, right? Like, exactly. Jack, seeing in the NDP more or less are on board with the COVID regime. I yep. don't know where the Bloc Quebecois is, but it sounds like they haven't really done anything. 
And I mean, one of, and one of the reasons there was a lot of like hand wringing on the part of the conservatives after the election, like why did why did they not pick up any seats or anything? It's because Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative Party did nothing to oppose Trudeau, and they fully support the COVID regime. And the only guy who did oppose it, Maxime Bernier, yep. is in a small marginal party that's been demonized since its inception is never going to get anywhere. So, you know, um, there's just, there's no opposition. And there's another factor at play here too, which we haven't touched on yet is the Americans, because this is a border. There's two countries involved and Joe Biden, you know, demented old man that he is, (laughs) the the, the people, the people around him are all branch Covidians. They're all highly financed by the pharmaceutical companies and they, you know, the, the, the mandate extends going into the U.S. So even if Justin Trudeau um, caved or altered his stance on this, um, we also have to wait for the Americans to do it as well. So, I mean, it, the, the, the situation is a little more is, is a little more fraught in that way. Um, but, you know, the Americans have the same problem, too. Right. Like, you know, the the, the, the power centered around. Um, the, the president, and the executive, the fact that Congress is bought, paid for, feckless and doesn't do their jobs. And like, you know, the trust in institutions down there is even lower than it is in Canada. Um, you know, like I, I, I don't I'm, I'm not quite sure I see a way out of this while Biden and the Democrats are in charge. Well, I think to the credit of the USA, I think that the U.S. political system certainly has more points of um, democratic contestation available to it. Like, so, for example, an interesting, notable aspect of the, of the uh, American state is that um, a lot of the judiciary at the state level is uh, elected, um, whereas all of the judiciary in Canada, every single one from like the justice of the peace to higher, they're all appointed. Um, by, so it's That's a political true. appointment. Yeah. Um, I think furthermore... Uh, the base of small business owners in the United States is, I don't know what, I don't know exactly what it is with them, but they seem better organized. They have like more of a a independent position compared to the Canadians. Um, And I, it might be because they are able to take advantage of uh, these sites of contestation and um, action through them. And so I think that the American political system is a little bit more dynamic um, there is more actual democratic deliberation to some extent, although certainly it's nothing, it's not like a real democracy in the sense that mass of people are participating and having their voices heard. It's, so it's similar to Canada to that extent. Well, go, go ahead, Alexander. I, I was just going to ask Gorda, um, I wondered if you could speak a little bit more uh, about the 20 odd year, uh, as you were describing, like war on trucking and uh, truckers and like the, uh, the United States, because in Britain, uh, we had a, 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 a truck operators crisis um, back at the end of last year. They were putting it down to Brexit due to the fact that 15 to 20 percent of the truckers labor force was coming from Central and Eastern Europe when we were in the EU. And then when we left, suddenly that was cut off and then they lost 15 to 20 percent of the labor force and there was a crisis. But even then, they steadfastly refused to raise wages and tried to then bring in people on visa exemptions. So um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the, the crisis in the industry in the well, United they do, States. They, they, they do the same thing in the U.S. and it's 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 a problem addressed as like it's either they call it churn, right? So 
in the U.S., they have a real problem retaining truck drivers because, as you say, in specific parts of the market, especially freight, like general freight and the refrigerated business, um, the material conditions of drivers is terrible, and they get uh, their time gets abused. They don't get paid for a lot of their time, especially the port guys coming on and off uh, uh, ports where containers are offloaded from boats. They th- these particular sectors just turn people over like crazy um, because the wages suck. And part of the reason that exists, as I've ex- come to find out and explore, is that it's subsidized by the taxpayer. The large trucking companies just keep hiring new people and training them, and that training is subsidized by various levels of government. right? And even, even with all of that, they, they still can't seem to get enough drivers, although there's plenty of truck drivers around because there's many, many people in America that do have the necessary commercial driver's license. They just refuse to join the business because they just got hosed by it so badly. Right? Mm. And so instead of tackling that, instead of raising wages, instead of you know having the distribution and logistics uh, industries improve their operations so that driver's time isn't wasted so much, they just keep saying, well, we'll just keep hiring new drivers. And if we can't get new drivers, we'll get them from Central America or Mexico. Or, you know, there was a whole series of articles last year in media all around the world about these various supply chain crises. And like you said, it happened with Brexit in the UK. It's happening in Canada. It's happening in the U.S. That, well, we'll just we'll just keep importing drivers from other parts of the world. But that begs the question. What's the worldwide number of truck drivers and how do you just expect you're just going to like pick them off the shelf? Like you're just going to like everyone's just dying to come and drive a truck in America and get abused and not paid correctly. You know, like the, the it never crosses anybody's minds to try and address the problems here. Paying people more, not abusing their time, making the, the material conditions of the job better never enters the equation. Why that is? Who knows? You guys are a Marxist podcast. Maybe it's many decades of neoliberalism and just this idea that you can just keep outsourcing jobs and get and grind everybody down to get everything as cheap as possible. Like, who knows? I'm not I'm not going to claim to have the answer to that. But like, it's very telling that they never try to address the problem. They just want to keep throwing more bodies at it as cheaply as possible. It's a worldwide concern. Well, it's interesting the way you said that the is the federal government which subsidizes new driver training, did you say? It's various levels of government. Often it's the states, the local counties will have initiatives to like, because, the, you know, in America, there's this like Puritan work ethic thing. And it's always jobs, jobs, jobs. Like you got to have a job. And every politician talks about jobs. So if you're a trucking company and you roll into some state level bureaucracy that's in charge of like job development programs and just say hey we need 50 drivers at our company can we get a grant for training them they'll often get it they'll they'll get it from the feds through training ex-military people or you know there's all these different programs and subsidies available and the government's happy to hand it over but they never ask the question why do you keep needing this money why do you keep needing this these people they never they never address the problem at the other end of retaining them. Yeah. Right. So it's just it's just too simple to just keep living off the state and keep keep the wheels rolling rather than actually making things better so that people will stay naturally and, and you remove this problem. 
Well, we've got the thing now where, like, thanks to um, us, like, hoovering up all the truck drivers from Eastern Europe, um, places like Romania now have a chronic truck driver shortage because they were all coming here to work for many, many decades. But also, like, the we're talking about, like, uh, a subsidization of a low-wage regime because the government, the central government here, subsidizes um, – the the major um, commercial operators in Britain paying low wages by essentially offering uh, tying like various systems of tax credits to um, low wages. So like if you only if the company's only prepared to offer like barely minimum wage, the government will make up the difference to the so-called living wage. And um, and also like they they'll employ literally anybody from like the most desperate sections of the labor market rather than like raise the wages and recognize um, truck driving as a skilled industry, which they don't want yeah, to do. Yeah, same. That's exactly the same here. You're describing the situation here perfectly. It's the same It's the same story in America. Yeah. It reminded me actually, Gord, of the um, 20 years ago, I don't know if you heard about this over in uh, uh, the States, but we had like an extensive um, owner-operator-led truckers protest movement in Britain 20 years ago. Um, which was led by um, supposedly owner operators who started blockading the um, the oil refineries in Britain due to the fact that they were getting squeezed on fuel prices um, uh, due to the tax kept going up and up and up. And at the time, that was demonized as a, a Nazi movement by the, the Labour government at the time. But the the petrol tanker drivers refused to cross the truck uh, truckers uh, picket lines in front of the, the refineries. So the country almost shut down until the truck drivers union basically sold out their members and said that they were going to withdraw like union protections from anybody who refused to cross this unofficial picket line. And what that did was it enabled the government to basically um, screw the uh, the small business truckers completely out of it. So everything within 10 years was completely controlled by uh, the large operators who were then, of course, doing as what you were saying, which was then forcing people to work for them as supposedly owner operators, whereas in actual fact, you just had part ownership of a truck. Yeah, correct. Yeah, their, le their lease arrangements were you sign this contract where the truck is yours, but you're basically doing work for them. So you're not out on the market seeking your own customers, taking advantage, you know, moving loads that in America, they call it the spot market. It's just a direct relationship with a single company. They hold most of the leverage and the power. They dictate to you what loads you do most of the time, and there's not much rate negotiation going on. It's 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 a version of serfdom or servitude, but it's got a nice sheen on it. And you know, if you're good at it, you can probably make some money, and some people do. But at the end of the day, it serves to consolidate the power of large mega carriers, and it's not. You know, it, it doesn't make for a diverse market and it's not it 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 does not produce a wide array of small operators. Right. Like that's not what they want. They don't want the, the, the industry doesn't want tons of small operators. You know, they, they, they want some kind of control. So that's why these uh, arrangements have been so popular. We're just heading up against the hour. So I think um, maybe just to finish off. Um, all right, so Gord, like, what are your thoughts? Like, where do you see this going? Do you think it's going to be successful? Like, um, do you think that, like, what do you think the ultimate results will be? I know it's a lot of speculation, but I would love to hear it. Well, my speculation is thus: I, if 
And when Trudeau and Biden cave on this, that's a big if and a big when, they, they're going to probably only do this at the behest of other industry who are being mm-hmm. affected um, by the constriction in the market um, for truck capacity. If, if they cave, they're going to attribute it to that and they're going to continue demonizing the Freedom Convoy mm. and all of those drivers. And I don't believe that. Oh man, how do I phrase this? Yeah, the, I, I don't. I, I, I don't think that Trudeau and Biden will be seen to be listening to us at all. Mm. I think mm. that they're just gonna they're gonna dig their heels in, and it's gonna be a protracted fight. And mm. if they do, if if they do relent. Um, they will attribute it to other factors besides us, even though it might have it was probably us that caused everything to happen. Well, you've already seen that in a small way. Like I just I did see a, a piece in the National Post, which is um, more of a conservative paper here in Canada. As you know, they just said like we're moving from we're moving past COVID. It was really funny. The headline was we're we're moving past COVID. Like different provinces are now starting to state things like we need to we need to learn to live with the disease, etc. But they're like, we're li- we're moving past, uh, we're moving to living with COVID, but it's not because of the truckers. <laughs> yeah. No, no, they, they, they do not want to attribute any of this, any of this success to this, because, you know, what happens in the future if some other movement comes along to protest some other problem, right? Like, yeah. the, 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 it, the it, and again, you know, the institutional uh, labor, the establishment business, they had no hand in this movement whatsoever, and they don't want to have to look bad by actually attributing any success of it to that movement, right? Yeah, that's a really good point, and I 100% agree. But yeah, they don't like, they don't want to th- people to think that they have any form of democratic input um, at all. <laughs> so. That's very well, they don't true. Want, they don't want anybody to get inspired because, like. The regime for the last 30 years has, has really depended on everybody feeling very atomized and alienated. So like suddenly like a collective movement that people could embrace being seen to work is the last thing they want. That's correct. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, I just just to finish off, like um, just a comment on this solidarity and collective movement. You know, I, I we were talking, Gordon, like we we're just trying to think about the last time that something like this has happened in Canada. And I can't really you mentioned the referendum in Quebec in 1995. And I, I, I think that did kind of bring the country together to a certain extent. Seeing like, for instance, the Huterites come out for the truckers and people just come out on the streets like a negative 30 weather. People even in Ottawa here like um the truckers have been getting like nonstop donations in terms of food and other supports. People are like, Oh yeah, that, that yeah. GoFundMe is up over $9 million now. It's incredible. It's still picked. There's still, people are still donating. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. Yeah. I've never seen anything like it in this country. And um, yeah, there's certain, there's certainly, there's certainly grassroots support. There's support amongst the public for them. The, the problem is, is does that translate to any, um, you know, uh, legislative or you know successes like or, or taking apart taking apart these mandates you know like we've got the, imagine an analogy like there's a dam and that dam is Trudeau and the COVID regime the premiers and all of the 
you know, institutions that continue to support this. And the, the dam is filling up with water in the form of a grassroots, working class, everyday person support for this convoy and for its aims. And how long until the dam breaks? That's the question. Will it break? How much yeah. water will it take? I, I, I don't know. No? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it remains to be seen. Um, okay. Well, I mean, thank you so much, Gord. This has been great to hear from you and meet you. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to meet in person because it, the first day of the protest was so hectic. But um, hopefully when you're back in Ottawa, we'll be allowed to go sit in a cafe and we can get a coffee. <laughs> yeah, no, I would love to. I'm hoping to come back in the summer. I mean, people ask me how I got into Canada. Like, they have to let you in. You know, you're a yeah. citizen. So, like, I, I roll up to the border and despite whatever P-Hack says, <laughs> too bad. You have to let me in and you can take your uh, quarantine rules and shove them up your ass. I'm only staying for two days. And I went to the protest and fuck them. <laughs> yeah, seriously, fuck those people. I hate hack too. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much. Um, all right, so. Yeah, yeah thank just... you for the opportunity to chat. Uh, I was very happy to. Uh, pleasure to meet you, Alexander. And um, I guess we'll see you guys on the internet. Yeah, yeah. yeah thanks, for your, <laughs> thanks for your time, Gord. It's been really interesting. Yeah, no sweat. Take care.